This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show about things not seen, about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my good friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? Wow, it's been so long since we've been together. I've missed you guys and I've missed being able to connect with our listeners through the podcast, so it's great to be back. We took a good substantial break here. There's been quite a lot of Catholic news, including while I was on my Christmas vacation. We're going to be talking about the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict later. Otherwise, personally, we had a good, pretty good holiday as a family. We did some travel. For folks who are not in the Midwest, we can share with folks that it's very cold here right now, and I've got a scarf wrapped around my neck. As a family, we're also going through a big remodel project. I think I mentioned this in the fall because I was cleaning in preparation, and we're almost done now. So if listeners think they hear a little pounding or electric saw in the background, that's just because we, I'm here under construction. <laughs> How about you guys, Dan? How's it good to be back to, to the academic schedule? It is. We're back in it. It's going well, though time seems strangely, as always, to keep flying by. It just keeps going by faster and faster. Generally good things, though. I spent Christmas with my family in upstate New York and saw my brothers and nieces and nephews and parents, and that was really nice and celebrated Christmas liturgy at my home parish where I grew up. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been wonderful. It's been a busy couple of weeks, even as we were getting ready for the start of the semester. In fact, last weekend, I was out on the West Coast at, in San Diego at the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego and met a number of fans of the Francis Effect. So shout out to all of you. I, I wish I could name everyone. I won't be able to. And if I did start listing names, I'd inevitably leave people out. But for those who are listening, there are at least a dozen people who throughout the two-day conference and talked about how much they loved this podcast. And so I shared that already off air with David and Heidi. 
But the three of us are so thrilled to hear that. We're glad people are engaged in listening. And I will say, as promised, there were a couple folks, at least two people who said that they were on the edge of their seat waiting for the next season to begin. And one gentleman said that he was going through withdrawals. It's like he's addicted to the Francis effect. So so here you go. Here's your dose. We're back in your ears and happy to do that. David, how are you? Well, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to us is definitely a problem. <laughs> I, I will just say I have also gotten communications from listeners over the break asking, when are we coming back? And I, I just want to say to all of our listeners, both our kind of regular listeners and the Patreon subscribers especially, I am horrible at the details of maintaining community and communication on those fronts. I'm good at making radio shows and podcasts. I'm not always good at being a human, as my wife would say. And so my apologies for uh, making people feel like they were out of the loop in terms of when the show was coming back and things like that. But I have loved getting emails from folks asking about that. And I've always been very prompt in replying and saying, here's when the show is going to be coming back out last week of January, first week of February. So I'm just delighted that that's happening. I'm, I've had a very good Christmas break and beginning to the semester, we're back into classes as well at Institute of Pastoral Studies. I'm teaching the Ignatian Spirituality class and a class that I do on media and ministry, which is always a lot of fun. And I'm also finishing up some book projects and getting others off the ground, and that's always an exciting time as well. But as everyone who knows me knows, these things move much slower than I sometimes promise. So I'm currently negotiating with certain editors about late arrivals and mollifying other editors who've been waiting for proposals now for a couple of weeks. So I'm just always thankful when people are patient. And so that's the life that I'm in. And it's all good. I'm just happy about all of it. So I also really like the cold. So I'm just I'm really enjoying today because it's a really, really cold day in Chicago. And having grown up in the deep south, I much prefer this to 85 percent humidity and 90 degree weather. So I'm just happy as a clam. You're Gee, frozen like a frozen clam. I'm frozen like yeah. a frozen clam. <laughs> Gee, I'm a fan of winter, but today is a little chilly for me, although I'm so gl- grateful to have snow finally. We had a, such a mild January. And so for people who do a little bit of snow, there hasn't been much white stuff on the ground here in Chicago until just recently. So I can't get on board with this, this love of the cold, David. I'm sorry. I'm with Heidi on this one, or maybe a little bit more to the to the side. I, you know, it's interesting. I grew up in upstate New York, tons of snow, even grayer, snowier, colder weather than we get here on the east side of Lake Michigan and South Bend and beyond, because we had five great lakes worth of humidity dropping snow on us. And people would say to me all the time, when I lived in Boston, when I lived in Chicago, you know, oh, you must be used to it. And I said, yeah, I'm used to it, but it doesn't mean I like it. And I have to confess that just being in in San Diego over the weekend and going for a run in the morning along Mission Bay and the Pacific Ocean in shorts and a T-shirt, coming back here where it's wind chill below zero, it's a hard pill to swallow. But I offer it up for all those who, who are also suffering in the cold, I suppose. Solidarity. Well, I'll just give a heads up for travel to warm weather. Unfortunately, as a podcast, I know we're not going to be at the L.A. Religious Ed Congress this year. But I personally am going to be there for the National Catholic Reporter booth. So if there are folks who want to connect with me, I'll be at the booth or running around going to workshops and talking to folks. But I'm looking forward to going to Anaheim in the middle of February myself, (laughs) (laughs) towards the end of February. 
I also am taking a trip to warmer weather. Later this week when the episode drops, I will be in Tucson, Arizona for the Association of Graduate Programs in Ministry. I will be doing masked and as best as I can distanced traveling on an airplane. And then for several days, I will be with my professional colleagues who basically work in places like Institute of Pastoral Studies, helping with graduate students that are going to go on in various forms of ministry. And then the last day that I'm there, I'm also going to be meeting with representatives from the various Jesuit schools in North America. So I'm excited. This is the first time I'll be going to both this area of the country. I've been to Phoenix, but never south to Tucson. And my first time meeting with these colleagues, but my dean asked if I would be willing to go. And it seemed like a good idea to you know, I do enjoy the cold weather, but I can also take some dry heat every now and again. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, Tucson is like in February. So please be praying for all of us for good and safe travels. So by the time this podcast drops this week, we'll be about one week out from a really cool virtual event that I want to invite our listeners to take advantage of. It is about pilgrimage, and it's a co-sponsored webinar on Friday, February 10th at noon Eastern time. We'll drop a link in the show notes and on the website. You could also visit the Center for Spirituality webpage at St. Mary's College, stmarys.edu. So check that out, and all are welcome. It's going to be really great. We have two really good speakers, and it's part of a series that I think a lot of folks would be interested in that also includes artists like Kelly Lattimore and others. So check that out. So coming up on the show today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to look at the recent passing away of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. We're going to be looking at a recent essay from Cardinal McElroy of San Diego. And we're going to be talking about women preaching in the third segment of the show. So all that's coming up on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump, and I'm here today with Dan Horan and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On December 31st, 2022, New Year's Eve, Benedict XVI, the Emeritus Bishop of Rome, died at the age of 95. The first pope to resign from office since Celestine V in 1294, Benedict served as Pope from 2005 to 2013. Before being elected the Bishop of Rome, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger led the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith as prefect from 1981 to 2005 under Pope John Paul II. During his time as prefect of the CDF, he oversaw a number of high-profile theological investigations and the silencing of theologians including Matthew Fox, Leonardo Boff, Roger Haight, John Sabrino, Jacques Dupuy, among others. Concurrently, Ratzinger oversaw the publication of several controversial documents on topics including interreligious dialogue, liberation theologies, and LGBTQ persons, among others. Also during his tenure as prefect of the CDF, Ratzinger was the church leader chiefly responsible for investigating clergy sexual abuse cases. His handling of theologians, pastoral ministers, and abuse cases remains a controversial legacy to this day. 
As the retired Pope, Benedict found himself at the center of several controversies, despite his expressed commitment to lead a quiet, private life of prayer and study. One such instance involved Cardinal Robert Seurat's publication of a book arguing against any changes to the Roman Church's current discipline of clerical celibacy for priests, which the conservative Jesuit publisher Ignatius Press advertised as co-authored by the retired Pope Benedict. Even after public clarification, Seurat and Ignatius Press refused to remove Benedict as co-author. There are many more details about Benedict XVI's life and legacy, including his years as a young theologian and peritus, or theological advisor, to the Second Vatican Council, and we won't be able to cover everything here. But given the historical significance of a former pope's death, we at the Francis Effect believe it's worth evaluating and discussing. Dan, why don't you get us started? Okay. I suppose as as one theologian talking about another, I'll begin with respect, which may be surprising to some listeners who would perhaps not identify my theological work and scholarship or even my popular writing and speaking as being necessarily aligned with Benedict XVI or Joseph Ratzinger's. And I think one of the things that I can say is, is that as an independent theologian, as a private person, not as somebody holding an Episcopal office as Archbishop of Munich or the Prefect of the CDF or Bishop of Rome as Pope, theologians don't always agree and they disagree about lots of things. I'm often fond of pointing back to the fourth century and one of the greatest theologians of church history, which is Augustine of Hippo, who is often credited and rightly so as being the founder of the concept of original sin, not necessarily the idea or the reality of it, but the concept, the theological concept. But even the church's councils rejected some of his theories as in his own private writings, right? So the distinction between private theologians and the work that we do in research and historical evaluation and constructive proposals and what gets appropriated and articulated magisterially as part of the church's teaching through councils and through papal documents and local pastoral letters needs to be distinguished. And I think one of the things I'll say very positively about Pope Benedict is that I think he understood that distinction very well. Very early on in his pontificate, he began what would eventually become a three-volume series on the historical Jesus, and he spent a fair amount of time very explicitly in the introduction of the first volume explaining this is not his work as Pope, as Bishop of Rome. He's writing as Joseph Ratzinger, as a theologian, and I think that's really, really important. To me, that was the first sign in retrospect that he was capable of doing what he ultimately did, which is break a centuries-long precedent of dying in office as Bishop of Rome. There's a certain irony in that, of course, because all other bishops, according to canon law in the world, have to submit a letter of resignation once they turn 75. The Pope is also a bishop, and yet that's the only one that's like a Supreme Court justice seat in the United States. It can hold it for life. So I bring that up because I, I actually do have a lot of respect for Joseph Ratzinger as a theologian, as a thinker, as a brilliant person, as somebody who I believe was a wholly prayerful person. But we can also hold several things to be true at once. And so, as Heidi, you mentioned, some of the things I'm, I've been thinking about in recent weeks since his death and the remembering of his life and legacy is some of the things that, that were really problematic about his ministry. You mentioned his ministry as prefect of the CDF. and the the real, I don't know how to describe it other than inquisition, which is what the, that office used to be called, of 
theologians who were raising questions and engaging in other religious traditions and dialogue and doing things that made some people like John Paul II and Joseph Ratzinger, both of whom were born and raised in times of fascism and world wars and communism, it made them very nervous. And the result was really devastating, ruined people's careers and lives. Several of the people that were investigated or, or condemned or notified, that kind of innocuous term that's often used by the CDF, uh, ended up leaving religious life or doing some other things. And it's been a wound that a lot of them have carried for a long time. I just want to highlight a couple others and then pass the proverbial microphone to you two to see what you're thinking. But what comes to mind as well is the debacle of his trying to open up avenues for the Lefebvreites, you know, the schismatic, anti-Semitic group of people who left the church after the council, the kind of normalizing of the Tridentine Mass, which as Pope Francis has had to reverse and rein in because it's been so problematic. Early in Pope Benedict's ministry as Bishop of Rome, there was the famous Regensburg lecture that was very misunderstood in part because he was not used to speaking as a pope. He was used to and thought he was giving a university address where he could be very nuanced and technical and not realize how inflammatory some of those statements are. Another reason why I will never be a bishop or pope, because I like being in that academic context. I'll also raise something else that hasn't come up very much, which is the sort of homophobia that was very common under his ministry. It was within the the first couple of years of him being Bishop of Rome, that there was both the investigation by the CDF and the Congregation of Education of seminaries in the United States. And there was also a, a policy that was put out that, on paper at least, said that gay men could not be admitted to the priesthood. Therefore, seminarians should not admit gay men. I'll just a bit tongue in cheek here. Another religious I know at that time said humorously, he said, it's as absurd to say that gay men can't be admitted to the priesthood. It'd be as absurd to say gay men can't be admitted to become florists or something like this. This idea seemed just preposterous. But, at the, you know, all joking aside, it was, it was really a very kind of hateful and discriminatory stance to take. And I think that has had ripple effects in addition to the things, Heidi, you had already mentioned. But what are some of the things you all are thinking about in these weeks since Benedict's passing? Well, for me, the death of Benedict was a professional event as well as a personal one as a Catholic. So I was awoken in the middle of the night by our Vatican correspondent with the news that Pope Benedict had died. There had been some news earlier in the week that he was failing, although he had been quite elderly for a while. So immediately I had to jump into the mode of getting all of the content ready that we had if you haven't read the obituary that Joshua McElwee wrote, I highly recommend it because I think it was very even-handed and very complex in looking at a complex man. We also had a piece by Jamie Manson, who used to write for us, that she had written many years ago and interviewed a number of those theologians who had been silenced or otherwise attacked by Ratzinger, especially when he was at the CDF. And what struck me about remembering that and how painful that was for people who went through it. These are not people who take lightly a level of criticism like that coming from the leader of the worldwide Catholic Church. They're so dedicated to their faith that they've made it their life's work. What struck me about how reading about that is how that is not happening right now. And so it was a look back to a time a decade or more ago as we approached the 10-year anniversary of Pope Francis's papacy to remember how difficult that was. I was not a person who was a big fan of Pope Benedict or Cardinal Ratzinger for a number of the reasons that you've already mentioned, Dan. I don't like to speak ill of the dead. Some time has passed, I guess, at this point. 
and I appreciate people who are holding up some of his theological writing that they found inspirational. Certainly, he did more about sex abuse than his predecessor, John Paul II, specifically to finally do something about Father Maciel with the Legion of Christ, although he is not exactly a poster child for the perfect way to handle that issue either. So I don't know, you know, a lot of mixed feelings. I think it's, if we think more in terms of centuries, if Pope Benedict is remembered by people centuries from now, it will be for the way he left office, which is not exactly how I would want to be remembered, although I do respect him for making that decision. Some recent news reports talked about how it was insomnia at the end that was really bothering him. And now that he's dead, of course, I'm not sure we'll ever really know what was his reasoning behind that move, but it certainly was historic. And covering a papal funeral where one pope buries another pope without a conclave afterwards, certainly that is very historic and different too. So busy end of the year, beginning of the new year for those of us in the news business. And we can talk more about this later, but what will it mean going forward for the Francis papacy with the Pope Emeritus no longer alive and living in the same city? So what about you, David? What are your thoughts? Well, I want to pick up on that last point that you made, and I want to start anecdotally, and then I want to get a little, kind of stay in the speculative realm. So one of my early memories of the Francis papacy My kids used to be at a Catholic school, and I used to be on the board of that Catholic school, and I have a memory of a religious sister at an event at one point saying to me, semi-confidentially off to the side, touching her heart, Benedetto is still my pope, you know, sort of saying that she still had allegiance to Benedict, even though Pope Francis was the current pope. And that really solidified a certain kind of impression that I had of both Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict at that time, and Pope Francis, and the way in which the divisions in the church were manifesting themselves. And now I want to step into that last point that you were making, Heidi. I've been paying close attention in the wake of the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI to the way in which various commentators have said, well, now the restraint that Pope Francis was showing out of deference to Pope Emeritus Benedict has been removed. And also looking at other commentators who are saying now the restraint of the critics of Pope Francis has been removed. I've seen both of those reports, and I don't yet know what to make of them other than just as speculation. But I'm watching closely both to see where people underneath Francis, those that have been brought in underneath Francis, like Cardinal McElroy, who we're going to be talking about later in the conversation here, how they begin to maneuver, but also how people like Cardinal Seurat and others begin to maneuver now that Pope Benedict has been removed from the equation. I think that's a really interesting point. I hadn't given it much consideration, David, so I'm glad you brought it up. But as I'm hearing you talk and thinking about this, I would be very surprised to see anything change in Pope Francis, quite frankly. I think he has been and will continue to be pretty transparent and forthright about the steps that he's making pastorally in terms of policy and church discipline, in terms of teaching. And we've seen this in a number of things. I'm thinking, for instance, of the of the reigning back of the Latin Mass, right, which was something near and dear to, to Benedict. It was something that Benedict had more closely regularized. We see it as well with the broadening of church leadership to include women religious and lay women and lay men, including a very high level appointee who's a former religious himself, now a married man who has children, a lay person. 
And I, it's hard for me to imagine what restraint of Francis's critics has been extended during Benedict's lifetime, because you, as you mentioned, whether it's Cardinal Seurat or Vigano or former priest, former Father Pavone or these others who can't imagine that whether or not the, the former Pope was encouraged them to be more civil or to be more respectful, because clearly they weren't. I think one thing that this does open up is a pathway for Francis himself to retire. I would not be surprised. I think all of the sources that I have seem to confirm that as long as he is of sound mind and reasonable health and he feels up to it, he will keep doing the ministry and the work of Pope. But I think one of the great gifts, I want to pick up on what Heidi said earlier, and it's just a wonderful theological gift and an exemplary model of Benedict was to help shine a light on the fact that this is a, a Episcopal appointment, and it is an office, it is an important ministry, maybe one of the most important, we can certainly say. But it is not, it's not to be conflated with the person themselves. And that was something that was really lost in JP2's papacy and caused all kinds of problems, including those last years when he was effectively incapacitated and clearly not running the church. So I think, you know, I would not be surprised. I want nothing but health and good for Pope Francis. But if he now comes to a point of discernment like his predecessor did that he's not up for the job anymore and he's in his 80s. So God bless him. He's done so much tremendous ministry in his whole lifetime. Then I fully, I full confidence that he will follow his predecessor's lead, which I think would be a great practice to continue. Yeah. So (laughs) as a journalist and a newspaper, we also have to prepare for that, a papal transition as well. And it gives me hives just to think about it. But Yeah, I think it was highly unlikely that Francis would resign, even if he were um, having some failing health while Benedict was still alive, too, just because of the confusion it might have caused. So, yeah, I do think that's a possibility. And like you said, probably a good legacy for Benedict to have left. Right now, Pope Francis, as we're recording earlier in the week, he's on a trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo and also then going to South Sudan in what will be one of the more strenuous trips of his papacy. So we'll hear from the reporters who are traveling with him, our own included, about how his health seems during that. I was just going to ask, do either of you think that now in the wake of the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, there will be any formal theological clarification of the role of an emeritus pope moving forward? Because there was, when he stepped down, there was a lot of confusion and remains a lot of confusion amongst the laity about where authority really was centered and whether or not Pope Benedict XVI still had any voice or whether he was the true pope in, in hiding or whatever. Will there be any clarification or is it already clear enough? David, that's a really great point. And if I wasn't in the midst of a series on the Holy Spirit, that might be a great column topic for next week. But the truth is, I think there still needs to be clarification. And part of that has to do with what I thought was a really well-intentioned but poor choice of title. And so because there had been 800 years there and and the Pope is so much more a public international figure today than in the 13th century, um, he had to come up with a title. He came up with Pope Emeritus. That is problematic because there's only Pope Papa is a slang term, as it were, actually. It's not even the technical term. You, You are the Bishop of Rome. That's your actual office. And Holy Father, Pope, these other titles that we use are appropriate and important. But the key thing there is you are the Bishop of Rome. And all other bishops who retire, either at the mandated age or for some other reason, they also can be called emeritus. 
the former bishop of that diocese. So in Rochester, New York, just this past week, we lost another great Episcopal leader in the U.S. Catholic Church, Bishop Matthew Clark. He was, for the last so many years, decade or so, the emeritus bishop of Rochester. And Benedict was the emeritus bishop of Rome. I think, to your point, David, that's something that really should be clarified. I also think the wearing of the white cassock was a mistake. I think that actually he should go back to wearing the plain cassock of a priest or a bishop. But that's, there are theological reasons for that that all follow from that same sort of instinct. But that's a really interesting point you raise. I think clarification is needed precisely because when you see another guy in that same distinctive white cassock who has the term Pope anywhere near his name, it is going to be confusing. So well said. I mean, I think those things will emerge, especially if retirement rather than death becomes the way that most papacies end. So I think it depends on whether the next pope that follows a retired pope is following in the footsteps of or has coming from a similar place. Then there's less need for all that distinction for people who we had this crowd around Pope Benedict who wanted to imagine that he was still the pope because they didn't like the direction that Francis was taking the church. So I think those things may emerge over time. I don't think there's a whole lot of enthusiasm to start discussing that right now. There's a lot to still discuss about this, in part because of so many things that now are emerging after the death of Benedict. And then just to point out that a week after Benedict died, then we had the death of another very prominent churchman in Cardinal Pell from Australia and things that came out after his death, too, that he had said or written that were now being attributed to him. So. I think we'll be continuing to discuss the legacy of Pope Emeritus Benedict as well as our other leaders as we go forward. But for now, we'll take a break and we'll be back. This is The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Recently, Cardinal Robert McElroy, the Bishop of San Diego, wrote a lengthy essay for America Magazine. In it, Cardinal McElroy makes a case for a much more inclusive and affirming vision for the Catholic Church in the 21st century as a means of more fully realizing the kind of church articulated by the Second Vatican Council. He lifts up the examples of Catholic women, LGBTQ Catholics, and divorced and remarried Catholics as three concrete sites where greater inclusion and affirmation would open new possibilities for the church. In the essay, Cardinal McElroy offers three points of reflection. The first is the image Pope Francis has offered of the church as a field hospital. The second is the importance of conscience in the Catholic faith, the third image is the centrality of grace in our experience with the divine. In each of these images, Cardinal McElroy is inviting readers away from the idea that the Catholic Church is for the perfect or the perfected, and back to the idea that Christ gathers the broken and the wounded into a community of healing. The essay is not without its detractors. Surprise, surprise. Conservative Catholic commentator Ross Douthat devoted a good deal of his recent column in the New York Times to Cardinal McElroy's essay, noting that it is an example of, quote, the confidence of a progressive Catholicism that assumes that any dialogue can lead in only one direction, unquote. Another key focus of Cardinal McElroy's essay is the idea of synodality. David, I know you've been thinking about that subject a lot lately yourself. 
What should be our key takeaways from Cardinal McElroy's piece? Well, starting with this idea of synodality, and again, for listeners who may not know this term or have it ready to hand, it's a, it's a technical word for the walking together of the church and dialoguing with each other. And so for the past couple of years, the church has been in a process where it is using a synodal process to think about synodality itself. And this is really the invitation that Cardinal McElroy uses to frame the essay in America Magazine. And the idea there is, as we're looking to the church and asking about this process of listening to each other, some of the people that it's essential that we listen to are those that have, for one reason or another, felt disenfranchised or unwelcomed by the church. And how could we begin to bring these populations back into conversation and maybe even into communion with the church? And so he's highlighting the fact that women have been disenfranchised, and we'll talk about that more in the third segment, but also that LGBTQ persons who are baptized in the faith, but their baptism is sometimes treated as some kind of second-class citizenship, and also the plight of divorced and remarried Catholics within the church and the very confusing messages that they've gotten about how they can participate in the life of the church. And in each of these points, he is using these concrete examples as ways to invite Catholics who consider themselves to be within the fold to reflect on the ministry of inclusion, the ministry of welcome, the ways in which we could begin to rethink evangelism, which is not necessarily just taking the truth of the church into the God-forsaken world, but rather going to people who are already graced by God in various ways, and to really begin to lift them up in their brokenness, some of the brokenness that we have caused, and to invite them back into the church and into communion. So these are just some of the pieces that begin to set the table in what I really take to be one of the most exciting essays I've read in a number of years from anyone in the Episcopacy. So I'm so happy to hear you pick up on the synodality as a theme. This is something, you know, a lot of the more recently red-hatted cardinals have really picked up on. I think of Cardinal Cherney from Canada as well, who has written a lot about synodality. I also want to give a shout out to Cardinal McElroy. Full disclosure, this conference in San Diego I mentioned at the opening of our episode was a conference in which he and I were two of the keynote speakers. It was called Reimagining the World, St. Francis and Pope Francis. And so I was invited by the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego to give a keynote address on the enduring legacy and influence of St. Francis for the global church today. And Cardinal McElroy was invited to give a reflection on the same theme with regard to Pope Francis. And he, his keynote was the closing address of this gathering for which there were about 380 or so of people in San Diego. And it was extraordinary. He did a great job and it was focused on synodality. Those lectures were recorded and will be posted by the Franciscan School of Theology. So keep an eye out for that. And if they're up before this drops, I'm sure we'll have a link up there. But I just wanted to give that shout out that this is a theme that appears not just in a one-off way, but is something that I think Cardinal McElroy is thinking about a lot. And one of the reasons, as he shared in the beginning of his address, that he's so interested in synodality is that he is a mentee of the former Archbishop of San Francisco, Archbishop John Quinn, who himself was an ecclesiologist and a theologian, and who in the 1990s was writing about the history of synodality going back to the early church and how this was a term that under Paul VI came to be used in a distinctive way in the 20th century after the Second Vatican Council. And so this is something that Cardinal McElroy has been thinking about and thinking with others in church leadership and ministry for a while. 
I'll also say that Cardinal McElroy is somebody who comes very credentialed into these conversations so that if folks are listening to this and wondering, well, who cares what one cardinal says? I can listen to this bishop over here or this cardinal over there or this talking head on YouTube saying this, then the other. It's worth noting that Cardinal McElroy holds two PhDs, one in theology from the Gregorian University in Rome and a PhD in political theory from Stanford University. So he is an incredibly deep thinker and somebody who has been studying this for more than 30 years. Yeah, and I think I would, you know, I read the essay as well in our competing publication, America, and was very struck by how brave it was and how courageous it was. And I think the way that I've evaluated it since then is to look at the reaction. So I know that for a lot of more progressive Catholics, who are open to or who have felt left out or who have otherwise been concerned about groups who are left out, there was such a positive reaction to a cardinal in the church saying these things and very clearly in this written article. Obviously, people who are more conservative and not and are concerned about the fact that church teaching on some of these things might change were horrified and very upset about it, this. I think it's worth noting the context as well, that this happened right around the same time that Pope Francis gave an interview to the Associated Press, in which he said, among other things, but but which the thing that was highlighted in most of the headlines was the issue how homosexuality should not be criminalized. And I think he was speaking, obviously, about those countries, especially in Africa, where he was about to head, where, uh, you know, even the death penalty for homosexuality or homosexual acts. So there was some nuance to that about whether he had clarified whether homosexuality was a sin or whether he meant to say it's part of the human condition. And we had some back and forth about that. But those two things happening right around the same time, I know, gave a lot of hope to people combined, you know, that combined with the process of synodality that has been happening, that's going forward that we're kind of back to where we can at least talk about these things, even if we don't see change happening immediately. I had mentioned to him in person as well in passing, this is not confidential or or private or anything. I just really appreciated that article because it had come out right before this conference that we were speaking at. And I agree, Heidi, with your point about the kind of courage and brave tone that it takes. But I think he, and I don't want to speak for him, this is my uh, interpretation, is that I think he's doing what Pope Francis does, which is taking the gospel seriously, taking the example of the ministry of Jesus seriously. Obviously, St. Francis is on my mind and was on the mind of Pope Francis when he took that name. And St. Francis's whole way of life was about living the gospel of Jesus. And he did things that were considered incredibly brave at the time, in real time, maybe even stupid, like walking into the battlefield of the Fifth Crusade, unarmed on a peaceful mission, but that occasioning the opportunity, even against the direct order from the cardinal prelate who was sent there by, as the Pope's representative to, to the crusading army. St. Francis rather reaching out to lepers and living among them and advocating for those who are most at the margins and accepting a woman into his new religious community that is Claire of Assisi without a kind of plan for how that would work. And I see Pope Francis living that out I think Cardinal McElroy and is somebody who is doing exactly the same thing. Too often, I believe, church leaders and ordinary Christians alike let fear get in the way of living the gospel. What are people going to say? What are they going to think? We take the safe option, the safe route out. And at times that leads to inaction, that leads to kind of sins of omission. And so I really, I think, Heidi, you're right. It is courageous. 
But he's also naming things that, as David, you said, comes out in the national and international synod reports. This question of women's admission to orders. He's not, quote, you have to be careful because I know people jump on this. He's not advocating for it necessarily. He's just saying, look, we have got to talk about this. This is on the hearts and minds of people, and we can't pretend it's not. Well, and I want to take this in a slightly strange direction, perhaps, from the tenor of the conversation so far. When I get onto Twitter a lot of times, particularly with more conservative Christians, a lot of times what you'll find is a devolution of the conversation into, well, if we're going to deal with these populations, whether it's divorced and remarried Catholics or people who identify as LGBTQ or or anyone else who has felt disaffected by the church, the right approach to them is simply to tell them that they're sinners and that there's hope in Jesus Christ and that if they simply change, they will be welcomed back. And that's the only good news that we should give them. What I say in these interactions is, Oftentimes, if you are listening to someone and they're telling you that your actions toward them don't make them feel loved, but instead make them feel unsafe, and you insist on continuing to do those actions, ignoring what they say about the fact that they feel threatened by what you are doing or saying to them, you're not actually loving them. You're gaslighting them. The thing that I really liked about Cardinal McElroy's essay is that it takes seriously the idea of participation and consent of the vulnerable. Let me explain what I mean by that. It takes seriously the fact that the church needs to repent of the damage that it's caused to these people and the fact that they do not feel loved by our theology or our actions. And if we could actually recognize that within the church, instead of simply feeling comfortable in our rightness and our perfection, we might actually begin to live the field hospital that Pope Francis is calling us to, where the vulnerable, the broken, the wounded actually feel safe coming to us for healing, whatever that might look like. But again, they're going to be the geniuses of what that looks like. They know what healing they need. It's not our job to tell them what healing they need. I heard that spirit in Cardinal McElroy's essay. And I'm, I'd be curious whether you heard similar there or whether you had a different take on how he was approaching this. Yeah, I heard that there too. And I've heard that repeatedly from Cardinal McElroy even before he was a cardinal. And I think what that comes from is that he does a lot of listening to different people instead of just calling up the same people he wants to hear from all the time, which I think is human nature and tendency, a tendency to do that. He has been having synodal-type conversations in his diocese for years before there was a synod on synodality. He had specific listening sessions that were around women in the church. And so he's had an earful, and he's, it sounds like he's really taken it to heart and really heard what people were sharing with him. So this is, can be a very hard thing to do in, our, in any relationship, whether it's marriage or a work relationship or a church relationship, is to really listen to people who think differently than you or who have been hurt by the way you or your institution has been acting. So I definitely hear that from him. And it should be kind of a no-brainer that that's what the church should do. So I, it, as great as this essay is, it's somewhat discouraging to me that this is such a big deal, in part because it's so unique. Appreciate you bringing up Colonel McElroy's previous work with Synodali. He, uh, I was thinking the same thing, that, that the Diocese of San Diego has been holding synods, synods on young people, synods at the diocesan level for many years now. And so, again, somebody who knows this tradition and knows this theology and history through and through. I was just also thinking in light of what, what both of you were saying of tying this back to our previous segment on Benedict XVI. 
And one of the lines from John Paul II's funeral, one of the funeral liturgies that Benedict preached at before the conclave that elected him, that has often been taken out of context and used for, I would say, sort of malicious ends, which is this business about a smaller, leaner church, right? That I think some people have interpreted to their own sort of discriminatory benefit that, that this is a smaller, leaner, more perfect or more perfected church, et cetera, et cetera. And that's in just absolute stark contrast to the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So to your point, Heidi, like, why is this so astounding that a cardinal in the church would write something like this that would seem to be so intuitive when we take the gospel seriously? And I think, again, this is not, dis- I don't mean to speak ill of JP2 or Benedict XVI or anybody else, but where I find a sympathetic sort of bone in my body or thread to trace between their particular experiences, I think about how there is this nurture-nature combination that we all experience as people socialized in history in a time and a place, whether it's the communism that so affected John Paul II's view of the world, whether it was the, the Nazism and fascism in World War II that affected so much of Benedict's view of the world. And if we look at Pope Francis, his experience of being a descendant of immigrants and refugees to Argentina, but also somebody who was close to the poor, that also affected his worldview. So maybe there's a lesson in here, too. And one of the things to pick up on what you were saying, Heidi, about how McElroy is somebody who is a listener. And I've been in several settings with him where I've seen that firsthand. He truly is. I think that helps shape what one says and how one ministers and what kind of vision of church one presents to the world. And it's a vision of church, I think, that young people today are begging for. We saw that in the previous synod on young adults and vocation. And I think it's the kind of church that is most in line with the gospel. The last thing I have to say about this is this smaller, leaner church sort of thing puts those who are in charge or think they're in charge in the position of determining the authenticity of somebody's faith or their kind of full humanity. And what Jesus never did was tell anybody to change who they were. He might have had them, encouraged them, called them to change their behaviors and interactions to move toward right relationship. But he didn't say, be someone else so you can follow me. He just said, follow me. And that included bringing the whole person, the tax collector, the sinner, the fisherman, the people of ill repute, what have you. And, you know, if it's good enough for God, then it should be good enough for the rest of us. I think that's a great place for us to draw this particular discussion to a close. But I, for one, hope that Cardinal McElroy writes a lot more essays like this so that we'll have more opportunities to talk about this aspect of Catholicism being brought to the world. But for now, we're going to leave the conversation where it is. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Pope Francis has been in the news the past couple of weeks with some controversial comments about a number of topics. In late January, he made an off-the-cuff comment about Catholic homilies being a disaster and advised preachers to keep their sermons to under 10 minutes. Nothing prompts opinions from people in the pews more than a discussion about the quality of preaching, except maybe a discussion about liturgical music. After the Pope's comments, many Catholics chimed in with their opinions about Catholic homilies, 
length, it seemed, was not the biggest issue. Among the deficits, according to many Catholics, is the lack of women's voices in the pulpit. Since current Catholic practice reserves preaching to ordained priests and deacons, the Church can only draw on less than half of its members for this important task. Although some parishes allow reflections by women on some occasions, putting them after the homily or after communion, too often what is allowed by one pastor or bishop is canceled by a subsequent one. Heidi, you wrote a column about a project that highlights the voices of Catholic women preaching. Tell us more about that. Well, I'd be glad to. And let me just preface my comments by saying that I've been pretty lucky to have been that I grew up in a parish and that most of the parishes that I've attended as an adult have had really above average, even excellent preaching. So there are a lot of good clerical male preachers out there. But I do think if you talk to everyday people in the pew, there are some who are not so great as well. And so this idea that maleness or ordination is the only thing that's connected to that gift of breaking open the word and sharing it is a justice issue for me. When I interviewed the people from Catholic Woman Preach, which is the name of this project, the thing they kept highlighting was that it was a loss for the people of God to not hear from the other half of our Catholic Church. So it was less about women wanting to preach or feeling like they were being held back from something and it was unfair to that we are not serving the people of God or feeding them when we are not giving them more breadth in terms of the voices they hear in terms of breaking out the word. Just for people who are not familiar with Catholic Women Preach, it is a project that was started by the organization Future Church many years ago. And what it does is they've invited women to do these very brief, so Pope Francis would like them because they're all less than 10 minutes, very brief reflections that they videotape. And they also are available as podcast audio, and you can read the text of them. And they've gone through, I think, the ABC lectionary more than once, and now are culling some of them into book form. So the first book came out in the fall, and I had long wanted to write about this great organization. You can just go to their website, and you can search by preacher, by scripture, by topic, and hear some really great homilies by Catholic women. And it really fills in for people who maybe aren't able to be exposed to that. I just want to lift up again this concept of synodality that we've been talking about throughout this entire episode, because, again, this is an opportunity to really listen to the voices, the experience of and the wisdom of more than half of the Catholics that are in our church. And so I I am delighted that you wrote this piece, Heidi, and I am delighted that this is a conversation that is happening and that there are resources that are being made available. And this is a very personal thing for me because I think I've mentioned on the show a few years back, my daughter and I were walking back from mass and she looked up at me and she said, Papa, how is it? Why is it that there are no women that are priests? And I, this has led to a continuing multi-year conversation between my wife and I and our children around our relationship to the church, around this issue. And some of those things I'm happy to talk about publicly. Some of those are just private for my family. But I will just say, personally, I'm ecstatic that these resources are being made available, both for me, but also for my children. Yeah, I want to agree fully with what everybody's been saying. I've known about Catholic Women Preach for a long time. I have many friends and colleagues who have been uh, on that roster and are in the archive, and mentors, I should say, too. It's a great collection of Catholic women preaching about the Sunday scriptures. 
I will also add that this is a source of much debate and has been even before the Synod on Synodality, this question of can somebody who is not ordained preach at a Sunday liturgy? And the truth is, theologically, it's, it's kind of a gray area. There are these kind of workarounds where technically a homily is given by an ordained minister, but there are these provisions that allow for things like reflection on the, on the Sunday readings and this sort of stuff that can be delivered by others. On the one hand, I think some people approach that sort of conversation and distinction as a distinction without difference or as some sort of kind of technicality. And I think there's reason to support that kind of interpretation. But I also think there's a more substantive question that needs to be addressed, something to tag back to our second segment with Cardinal McElroy's piece, which is we need to really ask as a church, why is it that only, to your point, David, and your daughter's point, why is it only that cisgendered men who are being ordained to ministerial roles and to holy orders? And I think without jumping necessarily to the order of presbyters, we can have a conversation as there has been, at least theoretically, by two commissions around the question of admitting women to the diaconate. And there is solid historical evidence that this has been the case in the Latin West before. It certainly has been as well in the Christian East. And I'm thinking of, in addition to Catholic Women Preach, a really great organization called Discerning Deacons that I commend to our listeners to check out to learn more about this process and the advocacy that's going on to have this conversation, to do it well. It's supported by a number of bishops. They've been involved in the synod process. And I think that there, there's this other point about the ministerial role of preaching a homily and within the context of the liturgy itself and not necessarily as good as it is to have these sort of roundabout ways of getting women to the pulpit. I think we need to have, and we're at a time where we should be having a much more direct conversation about the regularity of that preaching ministry. The other thing I'll say about that is just because somebody is a man or a woman and we see this with ordained men right now, doesn't mean that they are going to be good preachers. <laughs> there are a lot of ordained deacons, priests, and I'm sorry, bishops, who are terrible, hence Pope Francis's comments. So I think this also raises the question about formation and, and training. Yeah, I would agree with you, Dan, that this whole kind of workaround of giving a reflection is something that I heard a lot in some of the social media comments after the column, which is, Women can't give homilies, so to be careful with that language that technically, if a woman is invited to preach or share reflections at a mass, that it's not technically a homily. Either it's after the homily, it's after communion. Another common way to get women preaching is to have them preach on Good Friday because that's not technically a mass. But it is a ticky-tack detail in some ways. And as you said, Dan, there are a number of people who are advocating over the broader issue, women's ordination, including Women's Ordination Conference, which has been doing it for decades. I will share here, I didn't in the column, that I was actually invited to preach at my parish right after the column ran. So I had been invited before. At our gym mass, we have the priest preaches, and then sometimes someone gives a prepared, a layperson gives a prepared reflection afterward. So that technicality that you're talking about. And at first, I was really reluctant. I'm a journalist. I do have some small amount of theological training. Scripture is not my area of specialty. And so initially, I wasn't that interested. And then I saw it was the Beatitudes, and I was overwhelmed by that, such popular scripture. But it really was a great opportunity for me to spend. I had two weeks' notice to really reflect on the Word and to think about how it applies in my life or what insights I've had from it. And I got very good feedback from 
other people at the Mass appreciated hearing a different viewpoint. And it does highlight what's, what can be so often missing in our liturgies. I, I want to pick up on that last point that you made there, Heidi. When we listen to vulnerable communities, this is true in the disability community, it's true in the LGBTQ community, it's true in many minority communities, there's a phrase that gets used, know about us without us. And I think that it's really important for us to think, again, if we're going to talk about the way that the church is going to be reaching out to vulnerable populations in the 21st century, to really have as a touchstone, know about us without us. And that's no N-O rather than K-N-O-W. And what I want to say about that is I would really love to hear a homily on a consistent ethic of life or the centrality of life from a mother who has given birth. I would really love to hear a homily about the importance of justice from someone who has had to live with the injustice of powerful forces both in the church and those that the church supports with its political contributions. I would love to hear the people who have suffered and who have not had the privilege and the comfort of being sheltered by and lifted up by the church, I would love to hear those voices in the pulpit. And I think that my children would too, because what we are really hungering for is the relevance of the gospel, not in a theoretical sense, but in a lived sense. And these other voices can really be bringing us those other ways of thinking about the truth of God in our daily lives. And I'll be honest with you, there are a lot of times where the examples that come from certain priests simply don't hit that mark at all. And I say that with great respect to some of the wonderful homileticians and priests that I've had the pleasure of knowing. But as you mentioned, Dan, that's not a universal thing. <laughs> and so I think in this particular case, God's extraordinary variety in the pulpit would actually be a blessing to the church. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the lessons of the pandemic as well, in addition, Catholic Women Preach has been around for some time and have been doing this tremendous work and creating this archive of homilies, of sermons and reflections. But I, I'm thinking of in particular of the worship community where I assist on occasion as a presider and preacher here in South Bend, which is the Church of Loretto, the Mother Church of the Sisters of the Holy Cross. And during the pandemic, they moved to a kind of paraliturgical service. Obviously, they didn't want to just live stream mass like a lot of parishes did. Remember those early awkward weeks of empty churches and sanctuaries where a priest was basically celebrating a private mass that was being broadcast? So a number of all women, actually, in the planning of the liturgy and in the organizing of this put together just a really beautiful liturgical service that existed for the better part of two years every Sunday morning. And it was really, I had started zooming in when I had heard about it as well. And oftentimes the person offering the sermon was a woman or a layman or, you know, somebody who wasn't necessarily an ordained minister in the church. And that did provide exactly what you were saying, David, a variety of perspectives. To have a woman, a mother, somebody who has experienced miscarriage or somebody who has had other life experiences that by virtue of the nature of the requirement for being an ordained presbyter, they're just not going to be able to speak to. I think the representation is important, but I also think like we've been talking about, the body of Christ is the whole body of Christ. And I think the whole body of Christ needs to be heard. 
Yeah. And, and again, the in- impetus for me to write this column was that there's a new book out called Catholic Women Preach that is about collecting some of those reflections. So if people, whether you listen to them or watch them or read them, I think you can find a lot of spiritual sustenance there. I'm struck as we come towards the end here, I'm struck by how we had so much churchy news to catch up on after being off for several weeks with the holidays. And there's just so much else going on in the world with the continued war in Ukraine, with the yet again another death at the hands of police officers of a Black person, black young Black man, and of course a lot going on politically in our country as well. So I know we're, we'll return to those topics in subsequent podcasts, but I just wanted to raise that there's so much news going on, but just a lot had gone on in our church during our vacation. Well, Heidi, we will be picking up on those topics for sure. But before we depart today, I just want to say, first of all, I've missed the both of you, and I'm so glad that we're now in season 12 and getting the chance to do this again. Thank you both for taking the time, because I know you're both busy, but it means a lot to me to be able to have these conversations. David, we didn't even announce that this is our 12th season. We, I don't think we ever mentioned the number. So happy 12th season, Heidi, David. Well, that's thanks to you, our listeners. But thanks for the support and helping get the word out. Please keep doing it. We appreciate it. And I also just want to say again, personally, Heidi, even though this wasn't the newsiest of topics, this third segment, I'm so grateful that you wrote that piece about Catholic Women Preach, and I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about it today, because again, I think that it's important not only personally for my family, but maybe for a lot of listeners as well. And to you, our listeners, thank you so much for your patience. While we were away over the holiday, we are now back, and we will be delivering a new show to you every couple of weeks. So please do return and be with us, but also tell your friends, and we are looking forward to being back with you. We'll be back with you in about two weeks. This is The Francis Effect. See you soon. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.